um, if you turn to with me to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 1, and um, that'll be our sermon reading for today. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, of you, always for, you, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit." so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from the idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, brother, for reading God's word to us. Um, If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Darren. Uh, one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be beginning a uh, series through First Thessalonians. Uh, it is a short book. Uh, there are five chapters, and so there are five days in, well, seven days in the week, but five days in the week, if you don't count the weekends. And so if you want to, I would invite you to read a chapter a day over the coming weeks, um, that you may be familiarizing yourself with this beautiful uh, letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Um, We're looking at how we live holy lives with future hope. The book was primarily written to encourage the church and to exhort them to live holy lives until Christ returns. So they're facing opposition, so they need encouragement. And they were young in the faith, so they need instruction. Um, As we dive into this text, I'd love us to now pray and ask the Lord to be with us this morning. So let's do that now. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that is true. Thank you that is active and living. We pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask that you do this for the sake of your son's name. Amen. Now, encouragement in the Christian life, I think, is one of those things that's probably hard to have too much of. Encouragement, I think, is something that we could all often use a little more of. Being discouraged in the faith is not an uncommon experience for any Christian uh, for any amount of time. Imagine a young woman in her faith, after recently coming to Jesus, couldn't imagine that life would ever feel flat again. And yet, into her second year of following Jesus, things seemed to be different. Things seem harder. Work becomes more difficult. She's feeling a little lost, perhaps, in her studies, feeling a bit pointless and aimless with direction in life, beginning to feel distant from the Lord. What does she need? Well, she needs encouragement in her walk. I wonder about you, um, if you've had moments where you felt discouraged in the faith, days that turn into weeks, turn into months, that perhaps turn into years. Well, each of us are in need of encouragement. Whether you're a Christian or not, we all appreciate and enjoy encouragement. And Paul here is writing this letter to the Thessalonians to encourage them, encourage them of the work that God has done in them, and then to exhort them to continue to wait with holiness until the Lord returns. Now, as we read this letter, we recognize that behind every letter is a context. That's true if you've written your um, upcoming with February 14th, 
coming up, Valentine's Day, and you, as you write a letter, there's probably a context behind it. Well, here there is a context, and so I want to land us in the context of this letter as we then draw out its truth. So notice from verse 1, it begins with the names Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, Silvanus is also called Silas. He's one of Paul's missionary buddies on here, this second journey. And we've got Timothy, that's one of Paul's um, spiritual apprentice who's joined him who got converted in Lystra. So how this letter got to be written and why begins back on Paul's second missionary journey. He'd been sent by the Jerusalem council and as he's sent off on this journey, he has a vision where God speaks to him through a man in Macedonia calling and pleading to come and help. Paul puts the vision together and Um, sees that God has called him to go and preach the gospel in Macedonia. So he sets sail and ends up in Philippi. Now in Philippi, he's preaching the gospel and he is seized along with Silas. He's beaten with rods and he's thrown in prison. While in prison, he's singing out the the, the ballads of the day, um, the Christian ballads of the day. The jail um, guard, he gets converted, him and all his household. However, the authorities ask him to leave. Leave Philippi, get out of here. And so then he comes to Thessalonica, the city dubbed the mother city of the Macedonians. Its modern day location is Thessaloniki, um, which is on the Greece coastline. It was home to approximately 80 to 100,000 citizens in its day, placing it in the top 10 cities in the Roman Empire. Geographically, it hit the, uh, the real estate dream of location, location, location. There there, there wasn't more you could ask for in the spot of Thessalonica. It was a prosperous city, a port city with access to the sea, a safe harbor alongside a major road. As Acts 17 records, as we heard earlier, Paul reasoned from scriptures over three consecutive um, Sabbaths concerning Jesus. And some of the people were persuaded to join them, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women in town. Well, the good response from the Jew, the good response from the preaching left a bad reaction from the Jews. They weren't going to let this small group rob them of big benefits. See, politically, Thessalonica was a free city. It was able to kind of function and print its own money as long as it paid homage to Rome. Uh, there was a temple erected to honor Caesar with priests performing ritual duties. Um, There were uh, inscriptions found that attributed saviour status to many of the generals in the Roman army. And so Paul's come along now and he's preaching a gospel about a new king, King Jesus. The true rescuer, the true deliverer. And there was an uproar in the city. The Jews set up a riot, they sought them out and they attacked the house of Jason when they couldn't find them. Accusing them, saying, These are men who have turned the world upside down. They've come here also, and they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. So with the charges against them, Jason, a new convert, helps post their bail, and they immediately leave for Berea. The reception now at Berea seemed good at first. Acts 17.13 says, when the Jews from Thessalonica, oh, oh, sorry, um, They received the word with all eagerness, testing it according to the Scriptures to see what Paul said was true. However, as Acts 17.13 says, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of the God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, there they came to, agitating and stirring the crowds. So much so that you might have guessed it. Once again, Paul has to leave the city immediately by way of the sea over to Athens. He leaves Silas and Timothy, his companions, and he's in Athens all alone. He's in Athens looking at the idolatry and what's happening. He's provoked by it. He's agitated by it. Preaches the word, the Areopagus, mild response. He then heads to Corinth where he awaits Timothy and Silas to join him. If you're familiar with the letter to the Corinthians, No wonder Paul, when he begins his letter, says, I came to you with much fear and trembling and weakness. Paul has been through the absolute ringer. Can you imagine for a moment if you're Paul, maybe feeling a little discouraged? Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, 
So there he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica from Athens to get word, well, how's the church doing? I was with them for such a short amount of time. I want to know, how are they doing? Well, Timothy comes back and Timothy brings a glowing report. I would love to be there in the moment when Paul hears the letter from Timothy, or at least the verbal words of how the church in Thessalonica is going. I think Paul's heart would have been filled. He's encouraged. They're standing firm. They're faithful. So is it any wonder that Paul, a man who's acquainted with perhaps great discouragement, would by any means possible pass on encouraging words of God to this church, young in the faith. And so he begins the letter. As his custom, he passes on grace. Grace, the free gift of God through Christ's work on the cross. He passes on peace, the the wholeness and the at-rightness of all things that comes through knowledge of knowing Jesus. Then he dives into what really is three chapters expanding his, his, his prayerful thanks for the church. It's quite remarkable as this week you read the text, Paul kind of starts by giving thanks and there's a look for the word for in your text, for this reason, for this reason. He keeps going. The whole thing is he's just, he's just overwhelmed with thanksgiving to this church. He's like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank God, thank God, thank God. He has so much appreciation. For what thanksgiving, chapter 3, verse 9, can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Do you get the impression that Paul loved this church? Do you get the impression that Paul was grateful for this church? Thankful for all the ways that God was at work in this church. We have before us First Thessalonians. And to divide our time, I want us to see three movements through this first chapter. Firstly, Paul gives thanks for them. Secondly, the, the source of this thanks, the reason. The, and then thirdly, the impact. The impact. So firstly, Paul's thanks. Look at verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Teagues and I visited some friends um, several years back and they showed us tremendous hospitality. We stayed with them for a few nights. They welcomed us into their home. Their eldest son made us uh, scrambled eggs most mornings. They helped drive us around. It was a It was the kind of love that I'll always remember. Uh, It's a memory that I'll never forget. Paul, too, could never forget these believers in Thessalonica. As he thought of them, his memories were recent as much as they were refreshing. It hadn't been that long since he had left them, and there's much more that he wanted to tell them. He feared that that their faith may may be shaken by the afflictions they were experiencing. So whilst Paul is absent in body, he's present in prayers, thanking God constantly for them. His prayers of thanks was not like a jet flying by, but rather more like the sound of morning birds, regular, constant, chiming away in the background. Notice too who he was thanking God for. He says, I thank God for all of them. Daphne the baker. Alexander the Tanner, Irene the Seamstress, perhaps. He gave thanks for those he'd spoken to over the three Sabbaths. He gave thanks for the Greek God-fearers who turned from idols to Christ. He gave thanks for the elite and the upper class, those prominent in the city who now claim Jesus as Lord instead of Caesar. He also gave thanks for those who needed correction from sexual morality, chapter 4, verse 3. And for those uninformed about the return of Jesus, chapter 5, he loved them just as much as he loved all those who had it together. And Paul's mindfulness and thankfulness for all those in the church, I think, is just an outworking of God's mindfulness and thankfulness and love for all those in the church. After all, verse 4, they are loved by God, chosen by God, they're known by God. So, of course, of course, Paul would give thanks for them all. Now, you might be wondering, surely he didn't mean all of them. 
surely there were some people in that church where he just, he, he was praying through the member directory and he just skipped them. Well, I'm not sure if it's hyperbole, but I do think Paul, considering all those he encountered, all those he met, all those he'd ministered to, was thankful for all of them. Any hint of the way the Lord was at work in their life, he was grateful. I think it's here we begin to learn from Paul's prayer, don't we? Doesn't his, his scope of prayer begin to prod at our own prayers? This past week, if you were to make a list of all the people you prayed for, I wonder how long that list might be. I think Paul's prayer invites us to the joy of praying for more and praying for all. I joked about the members directory, but we do have members directory here at the church. And it's a wonderful thing that you can grab that and perhaps each day you pray through one letter of a surname and you work your way through the directory, praying for all the members here. Well, what is it that Paul was giving thanks for specifically? You see three things there, don't you? It says their work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope. Paul here notes the ideal Christian character that these Thessalonians are uh, exampling and exemplifying what, what Calvin called Christianity summarized, faith, hope, and love. But it's interesting, Paul isn't just saying, I'm thanking God for your faith and for your love and for your hope. Notice the words that precede those three. It's for your work of faith, for your labor of love, for the endurance of your hope. That's where Paul's focus is. So what is the first one? Work of faith. Well, this is faith that works. Now, it might seem odd at first that faith and works have been um, placed beside each other when usually sometimes in Paul's writings, they, they, they should be sitting in the same seat. And that is true. When necessary, Paul does put faith and works, um, set them in contrast to each other, like in the book of Galatians, which you can find out more on Thursday night, 6.45. <laughs> but it's also when it's necessary, he keeps them together, like a flow-on effect, like in the book of James. Faith is the fountain, and there's a stream of works that come from it. Their faith was working its way out. What exactly this work looks like, we're not told. Just like we're not told what the labor of love looked like, the work of faith, I think, is any Christian activity that results from faith. We see from verse 8 and 9, their faith worked its way out through evangelism. So they're reaching beyond regions in Macedonia. That's at least one way. Another way, we, we see that there might be their repentance when they turn from idols to serve the true and living God. That certainly is their faith working itself out. In any of these cases, faith is outworking despite opposition. Opposition is coming their way. They haven't put their faith on the back burner. They're keeping it front and center. Even when hits are coming their way, their faith is at work. A man walks down the street. Hears about this man Paul preaching. Ends up convicted of his sin, convinced that, that Jesus is now his savior. What does he do? He seeks to return the tools that he'd been stealing over the past year. That's work of faith. A woman's husband, who's a leading figure in the city, doesn't get why she's not now following this Jesus guy. And whilst he begins to treat her a bit cold, she respects him, seeks to pray for him, seeks to lovingly serve him whilst not returning to her old, her old emperor worship of Caesar. What is that? That is faith, a work of faith. Some say, but it would be costly to walk out this faith. Yes, it will be costly to walk out your faith, to work out your faith. But let faith get to work. Paul's thankful for the work of faith. He's also thankful, he says, for the labor of love. Now, that word labor here is stronger than the word work. To simply work is to do something, used of manual, manual work and also of the ministering work. Labor is to do something that includes discomfort or hardship. I think any parent would be familiar with the phrase or feeling, a labor of love. 
Such work requires effort, a, a kind of weariness, a, a measure of sacrifice or fatigue. Paul, Paul tells them to this church, when we're praying for you, as we're giving thanks for you, I'm, I'm giving thanks that you, church, are wringing yourselves out with love, that you're putting sweat on your brow in order to love one another. Just like us, your love is costly. We know that some of the Thessalonians were, in fact, um, supporting others financially at a cost to themselves. That's a labor of love. Love can be costly sometimes, can't it? If it never moves into the realm of costs or sacrifice or struggle or weariness, and if it just stays in the realm of sentiment, how deep is such love? This church labored in love. No doubt they had God as its source for this love, for they were taught by God to love one another. That's chapter 4, verse 9. How did God love? Well, He loved, He gave His one and only Son. That's a costly labor of love from God himself. Love is where Christ poured himself out on the cross. Love is Christ laboring, a passionate pouring out of oneself for the good of others. Jesus labored in love with late night prayers. Jesus labored in early morning communion with the Father, patience with his disciples, long-suffering with his family, facing scorn and shame, betrayal and beatings. It was a labor of love. Why would he labor like this? Because he loved the world that the Father gave him. The sins could be forgiven. As the church in Thessalonica grabbed the love of God in Christ, they began to grab the way and the manner in which Christ loved, which was a labor of love. It put sweat on the brow. Church, I think it's an encouragement and a reminder, isn't it, that... Um, when things begin to feel uncomfortable in loving someone, that isn't a signal to stop. Maybe it's a signal you're just getting started. Difficulty, hardship, weariness, well, they're not signals to lay off. Maybe they're signals to lean in. It's a labor of love. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It might just mean you're doing something right. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not assuming, I mean, or trying to say that all love must be a, a, a wearisome labor. Of course, it's joy-filled. There are tasks that we just might take a bit of work, getting up early, making that phone call, setting the extra dinner plate, attending to people's needs. All of this Paul is thankful for in the church of Thessalonica. You guys, your work of faith is remarkable. The way you've labored in love, I thank God for that. I look at the third thing then, is their endurance of hope. Now, I've, uh, I've raced, uh, well, race is a strong word. I've run a half marathon before. Uh, I wasn't in the finest form, not from lack of trying, and around the 14-kilometer um, the mark, uh, I changed my goal. I had a goal of trying to complete the half marathon under two hours, respectable time, perhaps achievable. At the 14-kilometer mark, I changed my goal to just finish the race. <laughs> my knee was in pain. My right hamstring felt like lightning. Uh, as I ran, I, I, I honestly dreamt of... If I fractured my ankle, at least that would be a great reason to justify why I couldn't finish the race, because this thing right now is so painful. God's grace, I did manage to finish one step forward. It's difficult getting down the uh, auditorium stairs in the TAFE that, next, that, that, that morning, I tell you that much, in the driveway the next day. But there's an element of endurance, isn't there, with just pressing on, just one step in front of the other. That's all really is. That's all marathon is. It's crazy people just taking one step in front of the other. Endurance is the ability to remain steadfast and to persevere in the face of suffering or the temptation to quit. That's part of the picture here in the, in the church of Thess Thessalonica. They had resolve. 
not resignation. Paul's giving thanks that they haven't conceded, but rather that they're committed, that they're pressing on, that they haven't given up, that they've taken one more step. It's an endurance of hope. Well, what were they enduring? Well, they were enduring affliction. Think about this. Because they had turned to Christ and they no longer worshipped idols, their response in the city against those who no longer got with the program was one of antagonism. See, Thessalonica was a city that had a prominence of gods, the gods of Egypt, the gods of Rome, the gods of Greek. And it was a city that, as I mentioned earlier, was politically um, exceptional. And so there was the honor of Caesar and the worship of them as gods. Mount Olympus, the highest Greek mountain in Greece, considered to be the home of the principal gods, the, the 12 Olympians, that was only 70 kilometers away. But the Thessalonians, upon hearing the message of the gospel, turned from these idols. See that down in verse 9. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, for this church, a step towards God was a step away from idols. Idols are anything that controls your Emotions, your spending, your imagination, your margin, your time, your calendar, those things that, that control you. Well, they repented. It was more than just an attitude, wasn't it? It meant action. You see, the difficulty with following Jesus is, in fact, that sometimes it is difficult. It's difficult because it involves swimming against the cultural tide. One preacher said, said if we preach on money, we're not, we're, not, we're not upset when people are, are upset at us. He said, because we're coming against their God. See, idols can grip our hearts in all sorts of ways. So imagine Thessalonica, imagine a guy named Jesse. It's a good Greek name. He made leather goods. He was part of a tanner guild, and as he... It's like a trade association of sorts, and he would come, and part of that, being part of that was paying homage to the gods. And so he wanted prosperity and business success along with all the others. But now he'd heard this message from Paul about the forgiveness of sins, uh, that Jesus was the true and reigning king. Well, he must renounce these other gods, and so Jesse does. And so come Temple Day, Jesse no longer offers a sacrifice. You can imagine the other guys around him saying, come on, Jesse, you, what's got into you? You mean you're not, you, you're not going to sacrifice today? You want the rest of us to suffer because, because you're not going to appease the gods? Well, what's the outcome for Jesse? Well, Jesse says, there's one true God, and I must worship him alone. I turn away from his idols. All of a sudden, Jesse's no longer welcome to come to the temple. And to no longer come to the temple is to not have fellowship with the people. After all, we can't have these people in here who are going to upset the gods. Or consider Tabitha, who spun cloth on Thursdays. And around the conversation, she speaks to another lady. And the lady asks her, why aren't you wearing your amulet anymore? Another girl remarked up and says, yeah, I, I noticed that you weren't joining in in that prayer. What is with that? Another lady said, oh, I hear she thinks that Jesus God, this Jesus God is king. So they're confused at Tabitha's newfound faith. And Tabitha, filled with respect, but a bit of fear, courageously, courageously tells them about Jesus, how Jesus has turned her world upside down. But no one would trade with Tabitha after that. They cut her off. It's too hard for them. They don't want her upsetting their gods. If she wasn't going to pay homage to Caesar, if she, they certainly didn't want to be aligned with her. No wonder she needed financial support of others. Because she turned from idols, she faced the affliction of others. She placed a hope, though, in an eternal future. The difficulty with following Jesus is that, in fact, it is sometimes difficult. <laughs> It's affected them religiously, politically, socially, economically, spiritually. 
And sometimes when you turn your back on idols, people end up turning their back on you. I wonder, have any of you experienced that? To any degree? It can be difficult. These believers in Thessalonica, they couldn't turn their back on God. After all, he was the one they were waiting for. He was the one they were believing in. They had this active, expectant waiting, like a child ready for Christmas morning, waiting for Jesus to return. Jesus was the true God. He was the one who was going to deliver them from wrath, verse 10. From eternal wrath, not some earthly disappointment, not some difficulty or dysfunction they were facing, not some temporary discomfort or opposition to earthly suffering. No, they would be delivered from the wrath that is to come so they would not turn their back on God. This was no wrath like the gods of Greece who were capricious in behavior. They needed to be placated. They, they, they needed to be tempered. They needed to be appeased. No, no. This wrath was God's, not, not a moment of rage. God's wrath, rather, is his settled judgment against all ungodliness. And Jesus had delivered them from that. As one commentator says, whatever the agony and shame of the present, in the end, God will reverse their fortunes. Those who are without power now will participate in the final victory, while those who have power over them now will have to meet the judge, the God of the Christians. So you see their endurance? The source of their endurance was hope. Hope has a certainty to it, a confident expectation in how things will pan out in the end. And they have to endure with it. It takes time. Um, in 2003, uh, September 2003, I hoped the Brisbane Lions would win their third premiership in a row. And I didn't have to wait long for that hope because it was days away, the final happened, and the Brisbane Lions did in fact win their third premiership in a row. It's been 20 years since then. Endurance of hope has had to kick in. My loyalty towards supporting the Lions has wavered at times, but has been renewed and refreshed as I've spent time with Christians here and fellow supporter, supporters of the Brisbane Lions. So people are still hoping this year would be the year. They've gotten close. But that hope isn't certain, is it? That's, uh, that's a hope that might be based on good indications. It's not a, like an empty hope, like North winning or something, Tyson. <laughs> but it is a hope that is not guaranteed. Now, but these Christians, they, they have a certain hope not a wishful thinking, not a kind of optimism. Listen to J.R. Packer. J.R. Packer says, optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. The church of the Thessalonians looked forward to the promises of God. They looked forward with expectation that their faith in Jesus would deliver them from the wrath to come. So they pressed on. So I'd say to you this morning, brother and sister, press on. Endure with hope. Let us be thankful, I think, for any hint of endurance that you see in any Christian. They're pressing on. They're here another day. They're here another week. Praise God. This morning, can you think of someone who's enduring with hope, who's pressing on the faith, putting one foot in front of the other? I wonder, have you, have you thanked God for them lately that they're still hanging in? They're still holding on. Have you told them that you're encouraged that they're still walking out their faith? That's what Paul's doing here. He's giving thanks. He's mentioning them in their prayers. He's remembering their work, their labor, their endurance. And he's knowing that they're loved by God. We'll move through the rest of the passage at a Quicker pace. So that's what he's giving thanks for. Then we see this. Secondly, then we kind of see the source of this thanks. It says, verse 4 For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Um, who knows that kids in school can sometimes be mean? Sometimes they call you names. Uh, sometimes those names don't make sense. Sometimes they make sense, but they shouldn't hurt your feelings. Well, they do. I got called Bluey because I had a blue hat. For whatever reason, it just hit the heart. 
Well, imagine the Thessalonians would have been called many names, described in all sorts of ways by the people around them. But there's an eternal description of them that could never be taken away. Do you see what it was? Paul's reminding them. Loved by God. Could there be any better way to describe a believer? Loved by God? Could there be any better way to be described? Loved by God. Who are you? Well, if you're a Christian, loved by God. If you're not a Christian, would you know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who would ever repent and believe in him shall have eternal life? You could be known and loved by God. Paul wants to reassure them and comfort them with this truth. In essence, I think he's saying, don't let the sufferings you've been facing mean or, 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 or don't let those sufferings indicate that God's love has somehow been removed from you or taken away from you. Sufferings and hard times, I think, they can cause us to question God's love for us, can't they? Whether you're the most seasoned believer or not, there can be pressures on our faith. They can just question, is God for me? Am I his? Paul comes to re- reassure them with his truth. And he gives two pieces of evidence, the source of this thanksgiving. Two, two pieces of evidence he has. You see there, it's Paul's proclamation and their sanctification. Verse 5 is Paul's proclamation. It says, For our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Apostle Paul's preaching. Now, we, we only have one secular, uh, non-biblical description of the Apostle Paul. It comes from a man called um, Onis- On- Onisiphorus. I practiced that. And I, um, in the Acts of Paul and, and Thecla, Onisiphorus, it's oh, <laughs> so bad. I'm just going to make the court war and be upset. He describes Paul as a man of small stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. For now he appeared like a man, and now he had a face of an angel. And whilst I think Paul might have been an odd man to look at, when Paul was preaching, I think in one sense, for those with ears to hear, he was a sight to behold. Because he wasn't just speaking with words, was he? Not the word alone that was present. Paul makes that clear. I didn't come and just bring the word alone, but it came with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Spoke to them a heard word, and there was also an experienced power. Through the Holy Spirit, who is the source of this power, Paul and the others were deeply convinced, deeply assured, um, and preached with convictions concerning the truth. Paul, Paul says, I knew what I was bringing you, church. I wasn't bringing you a false message. This message is powerful. This message opened my eyes. This message comes with conviction. Paul preached them and proclaimed to them the word of God and power. Paul knows he wasn't just bringing the words of man, but as chapter 2.13 says, the word of God. They received it for what it was. Now the power um, in in places throughout the book of Acts, the Spirit also manifests itself in miraculous works. That's one way power is used in and throughout the Bible with Paul's preaching, the apostles' preaching. And I think that would have further convinced the Thessalonians of the validity of this message. But Paul's focus here seems to be the way that this powerful message manifested or revealed itself in the lives of those in Thessalonica, through changed lives. This is my, the gospel came, our gospel came to you with power and conviction. Look then at the sanctification. He says, he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What kind of men do they prove to be? Well, they, they prove to be gospel men, true men, men whose behavior matched their beliefs, Hope-filled men in spite of oppositions. Men of honesty and integrity whose character confirmed their content. We're going to look at that next week in chapter 2 where Paul makes a defense for who he is because if you can take out or kind of undermine the messenger, you can undermine the message. Paul won't have it. So Paul kind of defends himself. But these are men who made an impact. See that in verse 6? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul wants to convince them. It's a true message through his proclamation and secondly, through their sanctification. It began to change you. It's true that we're all imitators, aren't we? At one level or another. We're We're all imitating people, styles, words, phrases, originality isn't that original. We, we kind of pull from the culture around us certain cues about how we are to live, what we are to value, how to dress, etc. We're all imitators. Here, notice the way that these believers specifically imitated Paul. You see that in verse 6? It says, For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that's significant because Paul just doesn't say, hey, you imitated us, and you too began to look like Christ. So that is true. He says, you imitated us, reason being, for you received the word in affliction with the joy of the Spirit. Does that make you just think about the message of the gospel itself? Does that make you think about the, the context in which Paul is preaching this message to the church? Paul is being hounded out of town by the authorities facing affliction, and what are the remaining people who are hearing the message that Paul's passed on doing? They're saying, I'm agreeing to that. I'm going to be changed by that message. I'm going to face whatever affliction that maybe affected Paul. I'm prepared to do that as well. They received the word. They became imitators. They received it with much affliction and with much joy. This obviously wouldn't have been a problem if they just brought Jesus into their pantheon of gods, kind of put it on the shelf with the other 12 gods they were currently worshipping, would it? It wouldn't have been a problem. And that's, I think, true for people who just kind of bring Jesus as like an accessory to your life. It doesn't really cause a stir. None of your friends really mind. None of your people in your workplace really care. You're not troubling anybody when Jesus is just one option in your life of other idols that you want to continue worshipping. But these, the church in Thessalonica didn't do that. No, they turned from those idols. They got the Jesus of the Bible. Because if you have a Jesus in your life who is merely an accessory, part of your being, and you, as you worship, give yourself to other things, then friends, you don't have the Jesus of the Bible. And if you don't have the Jesus of the Bible, you don't have God. And if you don't have God, you remain under his settled wrath and judgment against all ungodliness. Well, Paul, the message he was preaching was a crucified Messiah. Jesus' message disrupted the culture and he suffered for it. Paul preached the same message. He disrupted culture. He suffered for it. Jason received this message. He imitates Paul. He suffered for it. The church in Thessalonica imitates Paul, imitating the Lord. They suffered for it. But we aren't to think that um, receiving with infliction that meant the rest of life was lived in a minor chord, as if it... Becoming a Christ just produced a bunch of Eeyores who just were sad and afflicted all the time. Now he says, afflicted with what? Much joy. See that with verse 6? With the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's just like Paul though. Paul was afflicted. He had the joy of the Holy Spirit. Think back to Philippi. Paul and Silas locked up, thrown in jail for preaching. And yet, there they are singing hymns to God. It's the first like jailhouse um, worship EP. Joy, affliction. And what's the outcome? Conversion. People hear the gospel. The gospel spreads. What else would you expect to find, I suppose, in the message of the gospel? Well, I think you would expect to find potential affliction. But you should also definitely expect to find joy. After all, this church now has a future hope. They have a guaranteed deliverance from sins. They have assurance that God will right wrongs one day. Their hope and their joy could not be taken away by circumstances, for it is bolted to the very foundation of historical reality, the resurrection of Jesus. Charles Simeon reminds us, he says, my dear brother, listen to this, We must not mind a little sufferings for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the prickling of my legs. 
Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We, should, we shall soon be partakers of his victory. Oh, Paul gives thanks to God. He thanks God for the work of faith that is among them, the labor of love, the endurance of hope. He thanks God that the source of this was because they were known and loved by God. That's why he's thanking God in this. Notice he doesn't say, Thessalonians, gee, I'm proud of you bunch alone. I thank you for all the effort you're putting in because you made this happen on your own. No, 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 Paul, the source of it is who? God. God's power at work in their lives. Look lastly at what impact it had. Such was the example from these believers that others were catching wind and getting encouraged. That's verse 7. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So word spread. People began to be impressed by them. And by impressed, I mean begin to look like him, imitate, molded by them. Like, a, like a, um, a, an impression, a, 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 jar, a, a, clay, a jar of clay would be kind of pressed into it to make a new jar. They were that. They were the initial mold. They didn't keep their faith private, did they? They took it public. One writer early on wrote, Illustrious and admirable men do not shut up their virtue within themselves but by their good report benefit many and render them better. This church was essentially just living out discipleship at its basic level, passing on the news they heard and passing it on to others. And as they spoke about their faith, others began to speak about it too. Uh, this is the best kind of gossip you see in, in, in the New Testament. This is the good stuff. Paul's just getting word back from people. He's like, man, did you, did you hear about what's going down in Thessalonica? Man, those believers, they are, they are facing the heat, but man, their lives are amazing. They're trusting in God. Well, this has been so encouraging for this church to read, I think. Verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we not say anything. Now this is, think with me just for a moment. I, I, I really hope you can see God's divine hands of providence over Paul's suffering here. Just put the pieces together, right? There was a certain kind of affliction that Paul faced in Thessalonica that meant Paul had to leave. Jason pays bail, which is basically, hey, we'll pay, leave him alone. We'll post bail, but, but Paul, you guys got to go. You can't remain here and keep preaching. So Paul leaves. He's essentially silenced. But whilst Paul is silenced, the gospel message is not. Word continued to spread. In fact, it rung out, it says, like a sounded forth, like a thunderclap. So much so, that Paul says, we didn't even need to say anything. What's Paul's missionary journey all about? Taking the gospel to regions where Christ isn't preached. Paul gets to this place, he preaches, he's told to be silent, he has to leave, and then what happens? The gospel works its way through the brothers and the sisters of the faith, so much so it spreads to all the regions. There was a road, the Via Ignatia, got that one. It's east-west highway, and it was right where Thessalonica was. And so its, so it's position was set up to see the gospel spread. So word just begins to spread. It's remarkable how in one's sufferings, the gospel continues to spread. The word got out. I think when people truly encounter God, when true repentance happens, they, they begin to change, they begin to speak about it. And as they, spoke, they, as they speak about Christ, people begin to speak about them, the way they've changed, the way the Lord is at work. Perhaps you've been formed by godly examples of fellow Christians fellow Christians who have just shown you what it is to follow Jesus, to open your house and home, to have open hearts and open Bibles, to organize your life around the gospel and his local church, to see the, the mission of, of the church move forward and the glory of God spread. I remember hearing how my, my pastor, mentor Joe Kahn, he, he left a, a teaching to enter ministry. He, he set an example of, for me to following Jesus, not just to following Jesus, but following Jesus particularly into the pastorate. I'm so thankful for that example. So this morning, my encouragement is, would, 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 these, would, would these Thessalonians, would, would they serve as an example to us here today, some 2,000 years separated from them? 
What stands out, interesting in Paul's thanks, thankfulness, is as one commentator points out, many individuals in the New Testament are put forth as examples worthy of imitation. And of course, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. That's what they did, not just Paul, but the Lord. But this is the only time in Scripture a whole congregation is set forth as an example worth following. Or to imitate, sorry, I'd be clearer. Now, whilst we cannot control what would be said of our church, we can pray that God would do a similar work amongst us, can't we? That we would work out our faith, that we would labor and wring out our lives in love for one another, that we'd press on in hope, that we'd face suffering with joy, we'd, we'd turn from idols, and we would await expectantly for Jesus to return. You know, it might be 2,000 years apart, but not that dissimilar to this church. We need encouragement. We need more understanding. We need to be urged on in love. We still need correction. We still need reminding. People today in our world still have questions about church leaders, about motives, and about the gospel message. People have questions about their faith, about Christ's return, what happens when loved one dies. Thessalonians gets to address all these things. As in the words of the old hymn, I think captures the heart of Thessalonians, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Practically this week, would you just do the very thing that Paul does? Would you give thanks to God for people in this church? Would you thank God for them? Whoever comes to mind, all of them if you would. And then would you consider what it might be like to let them know you've prayed for them? that you have brought a fellow believer before the throne room of God and interceded for them or thanked God for them. You've spoken to God and thanked him for who they are and the work he's doing in their life. What a remarkable privilege we have as Christians to pray for one another. May we do that this week. May we all be greatly encouraged by this book. And until Christ returns by grace, may we live holy lives with future hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that rang out through, through Thessalonica, through Macedonia. Thank you that your word did spread from Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Thank you that it reaches us here in Australia. And thank you that you saved us and that the word of God is at work in our lives and by God's grace will work out through our lives. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for the members here. We thank you that those, they are known and loved by you. You've done a work in their lives and hearts. And I pray, God, that you continue to do such work, that we over the next few weeks will be greatly encouraged as we look through the book of First Thessalonians. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.